Hello and welcome to Rising. It's Friday and I'm joined by the lovely Jessica Burbank and Amber Athey today. Now I'm going to be handing over the baton to them for much of the rest of the show, but there's so much going on. I had FOMO. I had to come in. Nice to see both of you. It's Good great to be, to be here. here, Robbie. Fantastic. All right, go ahead, Amber. Why don't you tee us off? Absolutely. Viewers are still fuming at CNN over the network's town hall event with former President Donald Trump, with some calling into question CEO Chris Slick's competency as head of the network leading up to the 2024 election. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez hit back at Lick's defense of the town hall as a, quote, newsmaker. She tweeted, making news is not the same as covering news. When one wishes to become a participant in events, i.e. making news, they become the story and sacrifice the pretense of a neutral observer. Also, no one got answers. It was 70 minutes of steamrolled propaganda, especially on abortion and sexual assault. Moreover, reports say Licht is facing a fury of internal criticism from his own staffers over the event, with one telling the Post, quote, I can't believe anyone thought this was a good idea. Host Anderson Cooper addressed the criticism on air last night. Let's watch. Many of you think CNN shouldn't have given him any platform to speak, and I understand the anger about that, giving him the audience, the time. I get that. But this is what I also get. The man you were so disturbed to see and hear from last night, that man is the front runner for the Republican nomination for president. And according to polling, no other Republican is even close. That man you were so upset to hear from last night, he may be president of the United States in less than two years. And that audience that upset you, that's a sampling of about half the country. They are your family members, your neighbors, and they are voting. And many said they're voting for him. Now, maybe you haven't been paying attention to him since he left office. Maybe you've been enjoying not hearing from him, thinking it can't happen again. Some investigation is going to stop him. Well, it hasn't so far. So if last night showed anything, it showed it can happen again. It is happening again. He hasn't changed and he is running hard. You have every right to be outraged today and angry and never watch this network again. But do you think staying in your silo and only listening to people you agree with is gonna make that person go away? All in all, the town hall averaged 3.1 million total viewers. The event outrated Fox and MSNBC as expected, but these are not 2015, 2016 level numbers for the network. Not even close. Mm. I thought that was a pretty good, uh, actually, speech from Anderson Cooper there, for, for my standpoint. Um, yeah, like, what he's saying is true. Obviously, like, Trump is, going, is, is running, is very well, could be the nominee, could be the president again. Pretending he doesn't exist doesn't make him go away. And I'm, I think there are plenty of criticisms you can level at the format and, and the moderation and everything. That, and Brianna and I argued about that yesterday for, for forever. But it seems like the criticism is, is the decision they made to have this event at all. Like, that's the criticism internally to CNN and, and even then some people on the outside. People like AOC saying, I, like, it's irresponsible to, to do the most basic job of journalism and cover the news. What did you think, Jessica? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think most people's criticism from what I saw, which of course is not all of the criticism that's out there, was he had just had this trial with, with Carol, Jean Carroll, and then came on there and made ridiculous statements that I think he could be sued for defamation again based off of what he said. Just his comments were disgusting. And I think that's what people were mad about. 
And Anderson, I think to me, came off a little bit patronizing in that speech because people can have criticisms about what Donald Trump had a platform to say, uh, especially when it comes to his comments about women. I mean, I think it was disgusting. But the point he makes about uh, Donald Trump's support, calling it like half of the country, he's pretty high on favorability ratings and his polling doesn't show that he has half of the country. Most of the polling is specific to likely voters, which is at best about 64% of the country. And within that group, he still has a pretty high unfavorability rating of about 51.4%. So I don't know if it's accurate to say that Trump supporters are half of the country. Well, but among voters, those are the ones who matter heading into the election, right? And shouldn't those people be able to have the candidate that they would be likely supporting go on a major network and answer questions from who I thought was a, a probably pretty unfriendly moderator. Um, I mean, I just think that AOC's criticism in particular was pretty absurd. The idea that by interviewing someone, you're creating news or becoming part of the news. If that were the case, no journalist could ever interview anybody. Um, because inevitably, when you're asking a controversial figure questions and trying to push back and fact check, you're going to become part of the, the situation there. Um, so I just, it, to me, this is a rejection of basic journalism, the idea that you can't talk to or give a platform to um, one of the most popular and also likely to be the Republican nominee uh, politicians in the country. Yeah, I don't think it's so much that uh, he was given a platform. I think most people are upset about his comments. For me, when I think about him having a platform and having a, a whole town hall devoted to him, I think that's fine. I think people should hear from folks running for office. I do believe that mainstream media does a bad job making that even across popular candidates. Bernie Sanders had plenty of town halls, very few of which were given you know, primetime slots on major news networks. So it has to be even across the board. But I agree that people have a right to hear from the candidates running. Amber, what do you think about um, his performance at the debate? I tried to make the case yesterday, and Brianna totally disagreed with me. I thought he didn't do a good job. Like, he talks too much, in my view, about the 2020 election and how he perceives that he was wronged. He, he talks too much about January 6th and how, every, you know, how it, what he, it wasn't his fault and the people there are patriots. I know Caitlin Collins started with those questions, but what I think he should do is just pivot, just like— like, move on as quickly as you can. Talk about your agenda, your vision for, you know, for what you're going to do in 2024. Other people in the Republican fold do that. Like, I was watching the, the, the panel afterward. Byron Donalds was asked those same questions, and he just he, he moves on quickly and talks about immigration, the economy, et cetera. Donald Trump never moves on because he's obsessed with it, and I think that he's, like, sabotaging himself because of that. But am I wrong? No, I mean, I think he would do better to try to have some kind of forward-facing agenda, but the reality is that that entire town hall was playing the hits, right? He was hitting on all of those old jokes and talking points that are crowd-pleasers, um, attacking Caitlin Collins for being an, a nasty person. I mean, the, and the crowd loved it, right? They reacted, they laughed, they cheered, uh, because— the reality, too, is that as much as people say that they don't like Trump's personality, they like his policies, but not his tweets, the personality is definitely part of it. Um, so I think that people try to tell themselves that they don't like the bombastic nature of Trump. They don't like how funny he can be. Um, but that really uh, goes away when you realize that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has many of the same policies 
but doesn't have the same charisma that Trump has and is not doing as well in the polls. Yeah, Jessica, do you think this is going to be characteristic of the commentary we're going to have to endure for the next two years? I mean, he's going to be running. Uh, the media is going to be covering him. And then other, like, Democrats and liberals and progressives are going to be saying, how dare you, like, cover him? Or how dare you stick a microphone in his face? Like, it's going to be about the platforming, the, 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 all, of, all of that stuff. Um, I think that's going to be that's going to make for some very weird criticism of people who are not Trump aligned at all, but who are just trying to do the job of covering the news. Yeah, unfortunately, Robbie, I, I do think that that's very possible based on just like where political discourse is going. And to the earlier point about, you know, Trump not putting forth a, a policy platform, an agenda for when he comes to office and just really seriously playing the hits. Uh, fomenting fear in the American people about various things, saying vague things in response to that fear and really offering no solutions. Unfortunately, what we would have to do to combat someone like Trump running is say, hey, here instead is our policy platform. CNN, Fox, MSNBC, you all should give us a platform to talk about this alternative. Unfortunately, we're not getting that from Biden because a lot of what he ran on, he's discarded once in public office. And so what do we have to talk about now? We have to talk about the media platforming him instead of talking about what would be good for the American people, which is what candidates running for president who are going to be the executive should be talking about. And so I think it's, it's representative of our political discourse as a whole, not just among people who support and dislike Donald Trump. Yeah, one gets the sense that the media thinks what would be good for the country is less media coverage of things. But maybe that's true. I don't know how you could feel that way if you're in the media. You, you have such a limiting view of like what your role is. Your role is to is to prevent the dissemination of information. Very interesting. Not uh, not my view. More rising right after this. Elon Musk is stepping down as head of Twitter in the coming weeks. The chief twit made the announcement yesterday, quote, excited to announce that I've hired a new CEO for Twitter. She will be starting in about six weeks. My role will transition to being executive chair and CTO overseeing product software and systems operations. The Wall Street Journal reports that Musk has picked NBC Universal advertising chief Linda Yaccarino to fill the top spot. Yaccarino interviewed Musk last month, and they discussed balancing advertiser interests and free speech on the platform. Let's watch. It is important that, you know, I mean, if I were to say, yes, you can influence me, that would be wrong. That would be very wrong. Because me, that would be a diminishment of freedom of speech. But I want to be specific about influencing. It's more <laughs> of an open feedback loop for the advertising experts in this room to help develop Twitter into a place where they will be excited about investing more money, product development, yeah. ad safety, sure. content moderation. That's what the influence is. Yeah, I think um, it's totally cool to say that you want to have your advertising appear <coughs> in certain places in Twitter and not in other places. But it is not cool to, to, to try to say what Twitter will do. And if that means losing advertising dollars, we lose it. But freedom of speech is paramount. Now, according to Yaccarino's LinkedIn profile, she's also served as chairman of the World Economic Forum's Task Force on Future of Work and sits on the WEF's Media, Entertainment, and Culture Industry Governors Steering 
committee. So I'm actually seeing some concern, consternation about this selection, both from from the kind of very very conservative right and also some liberal people because she follows. Apparently, she follows many um, uh, conservative or just like non-liberal accounts, which I guess is like guilty of some thought crime. But uh, but from the right perspective, uh, a concern that this is someone who might rein in Musk's stated commit, uh, commitments to free speech in favor of an outlook that is more, how do we lure back advertisers? Does that mean, you know, throttling uh, content that they don't want, that, ad that makes advertisers uncomfortable, that was the reason they left the site in the first place? So, Amber, you seem a little concerned. <laughs> yes, I am concerned. Just reading through some of her bio uh, information and some of the initiatives she's been a part of. It seems like she's really focused on this DEI monster, the diversity, equity, and inclusion nonsense. She's a believer in the gender pay gap. She has advocated for having journalism being filled with 50% women and 50% people of color. So, Robbie, I guess you would be out of a job under <laughs> Linda Yaccarino's uh, rules for media outlets oh, moving forward. But I think that this will be very interesting to see what happens because Elon has obviously made it clear that he's interested in uh, better monetizing Twitter and the content that goes on it. So perhaps that ad revenue is kind of enticing to him. But I appreciate that during that interview, he said that he was still committed to the idea of free speech. And he said in a tweet after this news broke, um, so presumably he was responding to it, the commitment to open source transparency and accepting a wide range of viewpoints remains unchanged. So let's hope that's the case, because I think that Without Twitter, there's not really another platform that has allowed uh, freedom of expression that reaches both sides of the aisle. Elon is such a jokester that I was half expecting when I saw this tweet from him yesterday that it was going to be like, then he was going to follow up with like a picture of him with like a wig photoshopped <laughs> on it. Like, Elon Musk is now running the company or something. What do you think, Jessica? Yeah, I would have loved that that was a hilarious <laughs> meme it was uh yeah elon with a wig basically but i i'm not super uh worked up about this i'm not surprised either i don't think it's controversial that she was someone who recognized that women are making 83 cents to men making a dollar i don't think it's controversial that she likes dei i can see how that would frustrate elon's base but I don't think that's something that would make her, I don't know, ill-equipped to be the CEO of Twitter. I think it's unfortunate how much control these CEOs have. And of course, they can exert some political influence when you run media companies, as she, I'm sure, has been at uh, NBC. But for me, I think this is something that's, I don't know, great for Twitter, because I think Elon has turned the place into a disaster. Do I see that really turning itself around? No, because... Many CEOs have a vested interest in making sure the, the companies do well economically. But when you get into the space of Twitter and media companies, I think folks really care about the political impact of how these websites are used. And I think that might be a part of her motivation in wanting a CEO position. So we'll see what happens on Twitter. But I don't think a lot's going to change. Yeah, I mean... <sighs> If she brings some balance because, I don't know, we might disagree on, so I agree that Twitter is not in good shape. We might disagree on exactly what's wrong with it, but like it actually doesn't 
seem to have improved that much to me since Elon took over. I like a lot of the things he says about it being a place for free speech, but then he's like personally adjudicating moderation decisions. Like I'll see accounts <laughs> of like, why is this down, Elon? And then he'll be like looking into it. Like that is obviously not a sustainable <laughs> content moderation model. So, and, and also I don't want Twitter as much as I enjoy it. Like it's not, I don't think it's important. Maybe I don't even think it's as important as Elon thinks it is, especially compared to his other projects of like, starting a colony on Mars. Like, let's not suck all of his time into running one of a handful of social media companies. So, I don't what do you think about that, Amber? Is, like, well, handing off responsibility <laughs> a, a, a better use of his time? I think it might be. I mean, yes, probably. I guess the issue is more just with this particular choice, because typically when we see someone who is really invested in this idea of gender and race, they tend to elevate that over meritocracy, and they tend to be interested in protecting uh, those marginalized groups from offense over preferring free speech. And so I just don't know that her vision and Elon Musk's are aligned. But I do think Twitter is really important. I mean, just from a media perspective, it seems like it's certainly overtaken Facebook in terms of its ability to drive traffic to news sources. A lot of people say that they get their news from Twitter. And when you have an ecosystem that prior to Elon Musk was censoring news like the Hunter Biden laptop story, it was preventing people from saying factually true statements about the vaccines and about COVID that just weren't politically popular at the time. I think that's a huge problem and something that uh, Elon's been, I guess, trying to address. But I agree, Robbie, it hasn't really gotten to the right phase just yet. Jessica, what do you think has gone wrong with Twitter? I mean, Elon's just not a great businessman, right? He, he's been the CEO of companies before and has been attempted to be pushed out by the board of the companies that he's been on, uh, namely the merger with PayPal. They really did not want him in there. They said the company was going to go bankrupt and then they pushed him out. And so I think he probably would have continued to tank Twitter if he remained CEO. And I think he posted the tweet, please vote if you want me to stay CEO or not on Twitter, because he knew people would say no, and it gave him an easy way out. I voted uh, no because he needs to spend more time building rockets. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? That's what people are saying. He wants to go over to SpaceX and Tesla and save the world and blah, blah, blah. I'm not buying it. I'm really not. I'm also not concerned with someone who values diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. I don't think they're, they're going to change the Twitter algorithm, right, to make it so that it favors people of color or women's tweets. She's someone who believes that there probably is a stigma, which I would agree with, when you're in the hiring process. There's definitely qualified candidates from a diverse background across race and gender that are intentionally excluded because of their identity by decision makers in the hiring process. It's not representative of a decline in meritocracy, uh, but allowing those qualified candidates to have a chance where they otherwise wouldn't. Does Twitter's current makeup of uh, Silicon Valley folks in that office reflect the American population? I'm not sure. I don't know who's, who's staff at Twitter. Will changing that tank the company? I really don't think so. I think there's plenty of qualified people uh, to run Twitter. And he's done a pretty substantive job in cutting uh, a large proportion of the employees from Twitter. So I don't know how she's going to change the makeup there, but it's not signaling to me that the platform's going to get worse because of it. Mm. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us. President Biden and congressional leaders postponed a meeting scheduled for today on the debt ceiling so that staff level discussions can continue. 
Staff will continue working and all the principals agreed to meet early next week, a White House official said. The White House source said that the administration saw the delay as a positive and that the meetings were going well and it was not time for the main leaders to meet again, the Hill reports. Biden visited New York on Wednesday and while he was there, he said, America is the strongest economy in the world, but we should be cutting spending and lowering the deficit without a needless crisis. Here's what House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said after meeting with Biden on the debt ceiling on Tuesday. Unfortunately, the president has waited 97 days without ever meeting. Every day I asked, could we meet? And he said no. The House has raised the debt ceiling in a responsible manner, curve our spending at the same time, bring us economic growth. And I asked the president this simple question. Does he not believe there's any place we could find savings? He signed a bill that the House passed became law that the pandemic is over. We have 50 to $60 billion that have sat out there that's been appropriated for more than two years that we could pull back and save the taxpayer money. The United States is not going to default. It never has, and it never will. Professor of Economics at Stony Brook University and author of The Deficit Myth, Stephanie Kelton, joins us to discuss. Thanks for coming on, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. What do you make of what Mitch McConnell said there, that the United States uh, cannot default, never has, never will? Well, he's right that we never have, and I hope he's right that we never will. I think Republicans are trying, in a sense, to have it both ways, right? They're trying to say, we've taken default off the table. We will not default. Under no circumstances will we default on our debt. But at the same time, they're saying, we've produced this plan for President Biden and the Democrats to come to the table and negotiate the terms under which we won't default. And so, you know, it, it begs the question, well, what happens if they can't reach an agreement? And that leaves open, of course, the possibility that a default could happen. Do you think that raising the debt ceiling should ever be tied to cuts in spending? Or do you think that those issues should be dealt with separately? I don't think we should have a debt ceiling limit at all. So it's not just that I don't think that we should tie negotiations over spending to the lifting of the debt ceiling. I think that we should never have to argue about lifting the debt ceiling. We're one of two countries in the entire world that has something like this. And the other country, Denmark, doesn't even use it the way we do. So really, we're the only one. Uh, this is uh, an impediment in all sorts of ways, and we've seen it play out. You know, I'm old enough to remember the last, I don't know, handful of times that we've gone through this, and this becomes weaponized. Both political parties have done this, and, you know, it produces bad public policy. We may be on the cusp of watching that play out again uh, if a deal is reached that leads to cuts that, you know, hurt people and uh, hurt the economy. You heard Mitch McConnell talk about the fact that he thinks that Republicans have put forward a plan that's going to produce economic growth. The truth is these spending cuts will do exactly the opposite. So if you look at the you know, studies that have been put out by Mark Sandy at Moody's Analytics and his team, 
they'll tell you this is not a pro-growth uh, plan to reduce spending. You reduce spending and you're going to slow the economy and people are going to lose their jobs. We're going to be worse off, not better off, if we were to get something that looks close to what the Republicans are pushing. I think a lot of us saw Speaker McCarthy on the floor of the House say, you know, if you had a kid and he had a credit card and kept spending over the limit, you would tell them to change their behavior. Can you say why that analogy might not fit when we talk about the federal debt? Well, I'll say that it does not fit remotely. It is completely inapplicable. So, you know, you have all of us probably, you know, people who are watching this have a credit card. You know what it's like to have a limit on your credit card. The limit is set by your creditor. Right? They'll tell you how much they're comfortable with you spending. In the case of Congress, the limit is set by Congress itself. You and I can really only take on so much debt before the debt could become a problem. We don't have the income available to pay our debts on time. We might start missing payments, fall behind, our credit rating goes down. We might even default on some payments. The federal government's not like a household at all. Federal government is the issuer of the currency, and that puts them in a fundamentally different position from all of the rest of us. There is no question at all that the federal government in the United States of America has the financial ability to meet every payment obligation it has on time, in full, because it's promising to pay U.S. dollars and is the issuer of the U.S. dollar. The rest of us are users of the currency. We could actually get into trouble with debt. So all of this talk about default is not about the government's ability to keep its promises, whether it's to bondholders, people on Social Security, federal workers, and all the rest of it. It's about their willingness to do so. So the debt limit or the debt ceiling has been raised 78 separate times since 1960. Many people have this fear instilled within them that we can't raise it now, that for some reason we can't add any more dollars to our public budgets. Uh, would you say that that's accurate or not at all? Not at all. In fact, Jessica, what it's say, when we lift it, what we're saying is that we are giving permission to the Treasury to add more of a particular kind of dollar to our bank accounts, to our pockets, to our wealth, to our savings. Remember, I think people forget that, you know, we hear this word debt and everybody says we're talking about the national debt and increasing the amount of indebtedness and so forth. But what we're really talking about is increasing the number of U.S. treasuries that the Treasury Department is allowed to make available to the rest of the world. That can be to pensions and other investors, be to money market mutual funds. These treasuries are our financial assets. They're part of our savings. They're part of our wealth. So the so-called debt limit is just limiting the availability, right? It's fixing uh, the quantity that are available at any moment in time of this particular type of U.S. dollar. It's really interest-bearing currency. I think of it as part of the broader U.S. money supply. Thank you so much, Professor Calton, for your expertise on this issue. And we'll be back with more Rising after this. CNN's Caitlin Collins is the center of a firestorm of controversies surrounding former President Trump's appearance on the network this week. The host of ABC's The View had this to say about Collins' performance. 
that was an hour in. Um, I, I, I don't. It was an hour. That she was. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that she was um, prepared. Um, I don't think he should have been given a platform. I know. I was wondering when he was going to be fact-checked in real time. She did on she the very first question. Yeah. Uh, well, I think she needed a producer in her ear, and I think we needed a Chiron. This is a lie. This is a lie. This is a lie. This is a lie. Um, that is right. what the media's job is. The media's job is to hold their feet to the fire and to get at the truth. Now, Colin facing backlash online after users pulled some of her old social media posts and media appearances. Here is Caitlin Collins back from when she worked for the Daily Caller. Okay, so George Soros is this foreign-born left-wing guy who essentially wants to change the nature of our country. And in this data dump, one of the memos was about the refugee crisis. And they made three points. They think that they've been successful at influencing immigration policy across the world. They think that the refugee crisis is an opportunity to continue doing so. And they think the refugee crisis is the new normal. And George Soros is this guy who is a staunch advocate for open borders. He wants people to be able to go wherever they want, whenever they want, for whatever reason. And for him, he sees this immigration policy, this crisis, as a vehicle to further his immigration agenda. Interesting flashback there. Now, I want to inject a little bit of context into the situation because I actually worked with Caitlin at the Daily Caller, and wow. um, Caitlin started her time at the Daily Caller um, as uh, a reporter for what was called the Smoke Room, which is basically uh, part of the Daily Caller that makes these slideshows of hot women. And there's one screenshot floating around of one of Caitlin's articles um, where she says something like, these refugees are seriously hot. Um, which is um, hilarious and awful, but um, she was uh, promoted eventually to cover the White House for the Daily Caller and then was poached by CNN. And my experience with Caitlin is that she's not a very political person to begin with, but she's very, very ambitious. So this is not surprising to me, this shift from sort of pointing out conservative talking points on Fox News to attempting to fact check Trump on CNN. Um, to me, this was probably the least shocking thing ever. And I'm also not surprised that she's getting backlash for her performance because she initially started drifting a little bit more towards liberal media after she was criticized for asking what was considered a softball question of Donald Trump back when she worked for the Daily Caller. So. That's whatever insight I can provide, Jessica. I don't know how you thought Caitlin might have done during that town hall the other night. Amber, I love that you're providing some inside information. That's a, a far more pro-immigration comment than what we just heard on Fox <laughs> from Caitlin. But um, yeah, I mean, Caitlin Collins has, I think you're right, this this vibe of like, I'm going to do the thing that, that furthers my career. She doesn't strike me as someone that's terribly opinionated. And I do think... It's interesting that whenever there's a moment where someone is in this position, where they do something that people who may have liked her fall in a different political faction than whatever side she's finding herself on now. I mean, saying that she's gave Trump softball questions or even doing and hosting the town hall was something wrong of her to do. I think now they're digging into her past and saying like, oh, well, it's because she's conservative and she has this agenda. I think it's much more obvious to me and it's a lot easier to understand what's going on 
when you have these big media companies, if you think, okay, where is the money? Who's motivated by viewers? Who's motivated by advertisers? Who's furthering their career along? It's pretty easy to tell the difference between someone motivated by dollars and someone motivated by values. And she strikes me as the former. Yeah, I think that's right. And she was kind of put in an impossible situation here. Trump is notoriously a very difficult person to interview anyway. I spoke to him on the phone for 15 minutes, and even then I got like maybe two questions in because he just monopolizes the conversation. He's known for steamrolling the people who are interviewing him. It's hard to get a word in edgewise. So even if she was there prepared to fact check him on every single point he made, I don't think that it would have gone over well either. And there's also a a possibility that he might not have even finished the town hall. I know they originally slated to have it for 75 minutes, and I think they stopped around an hour, or maybe it was 90 minutes and they stopped at 75. Either way, they cut it short because I guess it wasn't going quite the way that they planned. Um, but I also, there's another strategy that some journalists take when interviewing Trump, which is to kind of just let him talk because he does kind of. Uh, tend to run on into dangerous places if you let him go unfettered. That was uh, what some of my colleagues did at The Daily Caller, and they ended up garnering a lot bigger headlines out of that than by trying to constantly fact check him. But overall, it's just a really difficult situation. And, you know, far be it from me to defend CNN, but I think that she probably did about the best that she could. Yeah. No, I'm not a fan of, of Donald Trump myself. Uh, I think he's a, a dangerous candidate, dangerous politician, someone we shouldn't have in public office. However, when I watch The View, whenever I, I listen to people who are liberals, who are, who are elites, it rubs me the wrong way when it comes to political discourse, this kind of like holier than thou idea, this uh, idea that the everyday working class people in the United States are so severely uneducated and that's why they're making political decisions that are different from, from their own. I hate that. Uh, there are so many people in the United States that have become so apathetic with the government doing nothing to address their needs and doing everything to make this country a great place for big business who raise prices on us and lower our wages and exploit us and make the cost of living so terribly high that we spend so much time working for more money just to pay our bills and have so little family time. When you're in that position and you're only thinking about paying your bills next week, it's a little bit hard, A, to educate yourself on what's going on within the economy, within our political process, what's going on in government, but also see these candidates that have been in office for such a long time as people that could potentially help you one day when they've had the opportunity and haven't. And so when you speak about the audience at the town hall, when you speak about other people's political decisions in this manner, I think it creates a much bigger divide than if they were to just use their platform to say what they think should happen instead. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And I know we both come from blue collar backgrounds. And so that perspective is yeah. not represented in media a lot. And uh, that's why like, I often find myself getting along better with Bernie supporters such as yourself, as opposed to establishment Democrats, even though I probably agree with them on more issues, because the sympathy and understanding and just comprehension of these kitchen table issues seems to be severely lacking among so much of the media. And you're right, there's so much condescension that comes from these view ladies. And not even just at the working class, but also this idea that Sonny Hostin could somehow jump into Caitlin Collins' spot and tag her out and do a better job interviewing Trump in this tenuous, tumultuous situation. Like the whole concept is just ridiculous to me. 
Yeah, that wasn't a, a respectful comment by any means. And the view was terrible to Bernie Sanders as well. Um, they were not kind to Bernie and made criticisms that were about how he looks, his demeanor, the rumors about him uh, not being supportive of women when he was running on a policy platform that would be great for women in the United States. And so, yeah, I'm, I don't know why the view frequently gets in the space of American politics. I believe they started off as kind of an entertainment news show. Uh, and I think it's weird when you go from celebrity gossip to trying to make substantive critiques of the, the media in the United States and the politicians that we have. And like we talked about already, I think if you're going to cover a town hall for Donald Trump, cover a town hall for every candidate running right now. Every candidate polling above, let's say, 10 percent would be a fine policy. And I think they would still find a way to criticize what CNN did by hosting this town hall but they would be uh, in a much more tumultuous place to criticize it uh, if they had to only criticize the Donald Trump town hall and there were many others. I think there is a substantive critique to be made. Okay, where's the town hall for the other candidates running? Marianne, RFK Jr., Ramaswamy, give them all a town hall. I agree, and hopefully we also get some primary debates as well. Uh, I think. Uh, we pretty much agree on this, Jessica, that all of the candidates deserve more airtime so that the American people yeah. can make informed decisions. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. President Biden, former President Donald Trump over this week's CNN town hall. President Biden tweeted, it's simple, folks. Do you want four more years of that? If you don't, pitch in to our campaign. An ABC Washington Post poll from the end of April and beginning of May found that Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis each lead President Biden by seven percentage points, with Biden trailing among young people and struggling among non-white voters, the New York Times writes. However, Biden holds a two-point lead over Trump in a new Yahoo YouGov poll released Wednesday. Reporter for Semaphore, Dave Weigel, joins us right now to weigh in. Dave, I think these polls kind of challenge this pitch from Republicans who want to move on from Trump that he couldn't beat Biden in a general election. What is your reaction to these recent slate of polls? I agree with that, and that's an argument that Republican voters don't believe. They just need to go out and talk to any of them, and any of them, I think, you know, outside the Beltway. Uh, their experience of Donald Trump is that the media tells him he can't win, that polls will tell him he's going to lose badly, uh, and then he and then he either wins or he does better than expected. No Republican will say he didn't do better than expected in 2020. That was kind of the consensus. Uh, and so I don't. I, I, I've talked to uh, public opinion strategies about their polls. You know, they released a set of state polls uh, in the last few weeks, uh, showing that DeSantis runs a little bit stronger than Biden does. Uh, but I, and I talked to him about it. It just doesn't connect with with the majority of Republican voters who think whatever it says, Trump has some ability to win that, that no other Republican nominee does. So when you look at these polls, how rigorous are you finding them? Are you looking deep into are they only talking yeah. to people with phone numbers on record with the voter rolls? Uh, are you looking into how they're contacting these folks and how that might influence results more than they can describe uh, on the top lines of their margin of error? That's a good question because there, there, there can be kind of junky polls that are just online or that don't reveal the cross tabs. And I, I, won't, I think I'm only referring to polls uh, that, that do have a checkable information. I mean, American Greatness in Susquehanna this week, they had polls respectively in, uh, in Florida and Pennsylvania. And they had the bare minimum of, uh, of, of enough data that, that will tell you 
okay, this is a real poll. You can go back and check this. They adjusted for the, the number of, you know, retirees, number of black voters, number of white voters, th- things like that. I haven't seen pure junk, um, but the I, I, Democrats are not you know, releasing their own polls that contra- contradict this, which I, th- I think is, te- is telling. They do not think this is an election where Joe Biden starts with an overwhelming advantage if they had data that said that they'd say so. The most they do is release polling, uh, the, and you saw this from uh, Navigator last week, that says some of these Republican priorities are really unpopular, well, which is different. And, and they will release the survey groups and all that, but they want to change this conversation uh, to book bans, to uh, abortion, to the issues where they know Republicans are less popular. Uh, but the Washington Post poll, I saw a lot of uh, people who, who like to tear these things apart uh, or had put them back together criticizing some of their conclusions. I didn't hear Democrats willing to do that on the record with their own data. Mm. I noticed as well in the Washington Post poll that Trump had a larger level of enthusiasm among his likely voters as compared to Ron DeSantis. But I was wondering what that, uh, how that changes perhaps in a general matchup Mm -hmm. in terms of independent voters. So maybe Trump is more excitable in regards to his base, but maybe DeSantis has a better chance with moderates. What was the breakdown there? Yeah, that's been a pattern in this polling is that DeSantis does better with moderate, both moderate Republicans and then as as a whole uh, independent voters. And this is this is actually a shift from well, lots of things shifted for 2016. Uh, in 2016, Donald Trump was seen as more moderate than most Republicans by by every every survey. Uh, voters just knew him as as Donald Trump from TV, and they didn't think he was as conservative as other Republicans. He's seen by Republicans as more conservative than DeSantis, which I think DeSantis is going to argue with when he gets in the race. Uh, he's seen by voters as more cons- uh, conservative than DeSantis. And that's, if, Republic- if Democrats have any optimism, it's that once we explain this Florida record to people, they're going to be alienated. No one, and I think they're correct that no one with a record as conservative as DeSantis has won a national election. I mean, you, you can, people can point back to Ronald Reagan um, Ron Reagan in California did not have he, he he as a governor the stuff he signed off on had a lot of uh, deals with with liberals a lot of things that he could run on abortion rights uh, things that they used to moderate his image I think DeSantis is a little bit of that in Florida uh, some of the environmental policies teacher pay raises uh, but he's also tried to implement I think successfully uh, for the most part implemented this very conservative. Uh, anti-woke but kind of anti-critical theory uh, let's roll back 40 years of of the socialist left thinking about how society should be divided along racial lines he's he's done that more efficiently than any republican uh ever because that those those ideas are are fairly new uh that is what democrats want to define him with what do you make of a lot of the polling that shows both Trump and Biden having very strong, highly unfavorable ratings? What does that mean for if you're, you know, a Democratic Party operative or a Republican Party operative about choosing a candidate that can pull independence? There are a lot of people who are never Trump and never Biden voters. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that strategy wise? Yeah, well, you started to see some of the answers in the Biden campaign with the, their first ad emphasizing January 6th, uh, their second ad, uh, set of ads into, uh, em- emphasize the economy. Their idea there is they could repeat what happened in 2020, which is that there was a, a core of voters who did not like either candidate, uh, but they broke for Biden. They saw Trump as a chaotic president. They were unhappy with a lot of what he did. So voters who didn't like either of them voted, voted for Trump. 
sorry, for voting for Biden. The difference this year, and this was highlighted in the Washington Post poll, again, a thing that people didn't have a great response to, uh, is that voters view Biden as old and uh, less competent to manage the presidency than they do Trump. They believe that Trump, uh, by two to one margin, is mentally fit for the job. They believe that uh, Biden, by opposite margin, is not. I mean, by the, the same the same kind of lopsided margin, they ha- the Biden campaign. And you started to hear this from Democrats who you know want him to win again, but are not necessarily uh, shouting Kool Aid about it. That the Biden approach. I mean, he's out there. He gives remarks. Uh, but he has not been doing as much media, certainly as Trump did, as most as most presidents do. Uh, the gap is filled by I think Robinson's very good at this. Just you clipping videos of him uh, looking looking incompetent. He's made you know gap uh, that had I think a policy impact or statements that people had to roll back. Uh, that impression has, was not there as much as Republicans thought it was in 2020. It is very much there now, and that's a a hindrance for Biden, not so much for down ballot Democrats. I mean, you saw this in 2022. Uh, there, there have not been many voters who say, well, I'm worried that Joe Biden's kind of old and out of it and he shouldn't be president, so I'm going to vote for Dr. Roz. That didn't happen. Uh, down ballot Democrats feel very good about that contrast. So they, they see, now they want to win everything, but they see the voter who has doubts about Biden, has doubts about Trump, as much more horrified by Trump, especially in suburban districts where we're trying to flip back uh, really 17 of them. They think the, the, those voters... Or maybe with maybe they want to know labels can or something at the top, but they do not like this version of the Republican Party. That's what they think at the moment. I think they might be a little bit uh, believing their own hype about it. But that's that was not wrong in 2022, and they got to you know dunk on a lot of people who thought that Biden's bad approval ratings meant there was going to be a gigantic Republican majority. It turns out they're right. This version of the Trump MAGA Republican Party is not that popular, especially with people who were you know voting for Mitt Romney 10 years ago. To your point, Dave, in 2020, Biden really ran as the return to normalcy candidate. But there's also been a lot of economic chaos. There's a perception of rising crime in cities. So uh, mm-hmm. do you think that that strategy will be effective again? And also on Biden's tweet here, where he's pointing to Trump's town hall as evidence of more chaos that he could potentially bring to a 24 uh, uh, presidency, is that still a winning message? Uh, yeah, well, look at the policy response to the Biden administration. So uh, what, what do they not want to happen in the summer of 2024 or October 2024? They would love for there not to be a surge of uh, migrants coming across the border. So they have gone back a lot of, on a lot of what they ran on in order to uh, have basically a reconstituted Title 42, ways to expel more migrants from the country, not a border wall. There, there is no way they, they would support that, but, but a tighter immigration policy. Uh, they've not you know, much tighter than they ran on uh, on the on the economy. They, the president is they're looking for some sort of debt limit deal, not giving Republicans most of what they want, but something that kicks that they're not dealing with in 2024. Uh, they are they've not much they can do with the Fed, but the president is signaling and Janet Yellen is signaling. All right. The Fed can lay, lay off now We're, we've got inflation falling to levels that we should be comfortable, comfortable with. They they're they're thinking of just what is the climate going to be there's not there's not much they can do to control will there be flashy crime in the news will there be protests um however you can see from who the white house emphasizes who invites to things eric adams until recently because of criticism of uh, about immigration they really want to emphasize mayors who are who are presiding over more policing and lower crime rates they have completely abandoned at least the rhetoric uh and the reform approach of 2024 let us have fewer grisly 
uh, examples of crime, less less public uh, disorder in cities. Now, that's not something the White House can just flip a switch and do, but that's what they've been doing in in, uh, in you know, who who Biden has supported. I mean, Karen Baster, mayor of Los Angeles, for example. Um, I think that that is what worries them uh, about 2024 and the public perception. They need certain things to just be so obviously improving, not 1984 morning in America improving, but so obviously improved that when Trump says, wasn't it better four years ago, they can say, well, no, it wasn't. Um, and they know they're not there right now. Dave Weigel from so Semaphore. Us, we'll, we'll be back with more rising after this. The U.S. Marine who killed a mentally ill man on the New York City subway by placing him in a chokehold has surrendered to police after they charged him with second-degree manslaughter. An attorney for 24-year-old Daniel Penny told reporters, quote, he risked his own life and safety for the good of his fellow passengers. The unfortunate result was the unintended and unforeseen death of Mr. Neely. Here's Penny's attorney. Let's watch. Morning. Daniel Penny surrendered uh, at the 5th Precinct at the request of the New York County District Attorney's Office. He did so voluntarily and with the sort of dignity and integrity that is characteristic of his history of service to this grateful nation. The case will now go to court. Uh, we expect an arraignment will occur this afternoon and the process will unfold from there. So second degree manslaughter basically means some reckless action that he took unintentionally caused the death of Jordan Neely, which from the video that I've seen seems perhaps pretty in line um, with his actions. I'm, I think some people are already complaining that he didn't get first degree murder or second degree murder. I don't know. What do you think, Jessica? Are the charges proportionate with the offense? I, I don't think so. I think there was a little bit of uh, a deliberate nature to this. Having him in the chokehold for an additional 50 seconds after he was motionless, I think as a Marine, you are trained to know uh, how to kill someone by, by a chokehold. He knows very well how many minutes without air it takes and knows very well that when someone is motionless, they're no longer a threat to your life. And so the additional 50 seconds of a chokehold after Neely was motionless, tells me that this should be a more severe charge than manslaughter. I'm not a legal expert, but I would definitely say something uh, higher than what he's being charged with now, with a maximum of 15 years. I do think this is a, a pretty straightforward case. I, we see it on video. Everyone's seen it on video. I'm sure that will be admitted. But yeah, I think that there needs to be a slightly more severe charge, given he knew what he was doing. Uh, there's video of it, and he held him in a chokehold 50 seconds after he was motionless when his life was not in danger. I'm not sure it's quite that cut and dry because we do see the video after he releases the chokehold where there are other passengers who are helping him put Neely in the recovery position. It doesn't seem like anyone at that time is concerned for Jordan Neely's life. It doesn't seem like anyone is of the awareness that he is not breathing. Um, to me, this was an unintentional consequence of putting him in the chokehold, and I don't think that Daniel Petty was setting out to murder Jordan Neely. I don't think that he perhaps realized that he was maybe cutting off his windpipe quite that much. And the fact that the other passengers are praising him after this happens suggests to me that no one at that moment was thinking, oh my God, he just killed this man. Yeah, I think we have as a society this unfortunate but collective uh, dehumanization 
of people who are homeless and who are mentally ill. And I think especially on the subway, people have an intolerance for folks who are experiencing mental episodes, for people who are homeless. And so I don't know if that was he didn't just kill this guy. Great. Uh, I think it was he subdued this person who was annoying us, who we don't see as a full human being. The discourse around the Jordan Neely murder is pretty much uh, of that. And there are a lot of people on the other side of this saying we have to stop treating homeless people like this. We have to stop treating mentally ill people like this. And I think the training as a Marine is key here. If it was someone who had no training, maybe they wouldn't know that when someone's motionless, they're passed out, they're no longer a threat to your life. But this is someone who's a Marine who knows that very well. So if the surrounding passengers didn't know that, okay, but this was a Marine. And I think the the life-saving measures or to put him in the recovery position afterwards, it just kind of reminds me of, you know, when the police end up shooting someone, they put them in handcuffs and then they, they call the ambulance, right? Many times they don't attempt life-saving measures. They might flip them over. But it's the kind of thing, if you, if you kill someone, if you take a violent act against them, and then after that, if you do something to help them out, does that absolve you of what you've just done? In my opinion, no. And I really think that's at the heart of this here. I think there's no question that people with mental illness should receive more treatment. Our system currently does a horrible job at making sure that particularly homeless individuals who don't necessarily have access to medical care are able to get that. But describing him as a nuisance or an inconvenience to the passengers, I think, really undersells the fact that there are multiple witnesses testifying to the fact that Jordan Neely was threatening them, that he was talking about how he was prepared to die. He was prepared to spend the rest of his life in prison. So I don't think it's unreasonable for any person who was on that subway to think that their life was in danger. And unfortunately, his history of arrest, he has over 40, tells us that this was an individual who was prone to violent outbursts. He's punched elderly women in the head. He was charged with kidnapping a seven-year-old child. This was not someone who was just mumbling to himself on the subway going through a mental health episode. This was someone who was putting other people in danger and has a history of violence. And in fact, there have been a lot of people who ride the subway in New York who say they recognized Jordan Neely as soon as this video came out because he had pushed them onto the tracks or attempted to push them onto the tracks who has punched women from behind and was well known among New Yorkers as being someone who was a threat to their safety. Yeah, I think when, when someone's experiencing a mental health uh, episode, right, we're not going to just get the people who are mumbling to themselves, who are acting a bit off. We're going to get people who are quite violent because I think it's a, a very lonely experience. Uh, to be someone who doesn't have their mental health of sorts in the United States. There's lack of access to care. There's a stigmatization. It's very lonely. And that fear can be weaponized to being quite violent, to not being happy with the people around you on the subway who have been maybe ignoring you for quite some time. And so is the response to that vigilante justice by an ex-Marine putting you in a chokehold when there are many people around. The response could very well be, let's hold this guy down until we can get someone to help him and ensure he's not a threat to us. It doesn't have to be, let's put him in a chokehold, which could very way take away his life. I think there's a solution here that isn't something that could have even threatened his life. If there were many people on the subway, it could have been the guy who was a Marine, Daniel Penny, saying, hey, everybody help me hold this guy down. He's clearly a problem. But the response of just let's let this ex-Marine do some vigilante justice and take this guy's life on the subway, that can't be the solution to mental health in the United States. We can't defend behavior like that. And I've seen people who are those who call out 
uh, crime in New York being rampant when we've seen consecutively from the NYPD's data that actually crime in New York is on the decline. So if you are so anti-crime, but you can excuse vigilante murder, those two things can't be true in the same world. And I think there was another solution to this that was not, uh, resulting in the death of Jordan Neely. Overall, crime is down since the 90s, but in the past five years, violent crime has indeed risen in New York. And unfortunately, I think vigilante justice is the inevitable conclusion of what happens when police are not uh, given the resources and the encouragement to do their jobs. When you have an individual who has a violent past, has been arrested 40 plus times, and currently has a warrant out, and yet is somehow still roaming around the subway terrorizing passengers, that seems to be unfortunately an inevitability that something uh, uh, like this tragic situation um, will occur. But I, I think this was a good discussion and, and thanks for that, Jessica. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. surge of migrants crossed the U.S.-Mexico border yesterday to enter the country before the Trump-era Title 42 expired. Title 42 ended yesterday, and according to AP News, the lifting of the pandemic-related policy would make it more difficult for migrants to stay in the United States. In February, the Biden administration announced a new rule that will largely prevent migrants who traveled through other countries on their way to the U.S. from applying for asylum in the United States, similar to the Trump practice, CNN reported. So far, Jessica, we haven't seen a major flood of migrants crossing the border. And as mentioned, I think it's because as we revert to Title VIII immigration policies, there's a steeper penalty if migrants are found illegally crossing into the U.S. within five years after a deportation. Uh, what do you make of the uh, expiry of Title 42 and what's next in terms of how our immigration system is working? Yeah, I think, you know, we're experiencing a bit of a mess in policy that uh, is the culmination of decades of, of pretty bad immigration policy in the United States. Now we have a federal judge in Florida saying that, you know, if someone is is not found to, to be court ordered uh, and they are not deemed to be a legal asylum seeker, then they'll be deported and must stay out of the United States for five years. There's some uh, bad reporting saying that under the Biden administration, there's only been the deportation of uh, Mexican nationals, which is just not the case. In May alone, uh, 4,000 Haitian migrants have been deported. And so this kind of misinformation about immigration is, is pretty standard when we have these democratic uh, regimes because they want to make it so that they are the party in narrative that is good on immigration. Uh, but the policy is just not there. There are many people who are activists in this space who would point out that the Biden administration is not great when it comes to deporting migrants and managing migration. For me, I think back to a time when we did not have a closed border and we have a pretty intertwined agrarian economy between the United States and Mexico. You have people crossing the border as seasonal workers working on farms in California, in California and across the United States, and then going back home in the colder seasons in the United States to Mexico, to their families. And people didn't stay and settle in the United States until that border was closed. And so this is a bit of a, a man-made problem when you think about the policy that intended to keep people out. It ended up uh, having people stay and start families here, which wasn't their preference either. Yeah, I'm not sure if the Haitian migrants were deported or subject to expedited removal under Title 42, because those are 
two legally distinct things. If you're removed under Title 42, you don't have that five-year moratorium on when you can return to the United States, which is why over the past couple of years we've seen a lot of repeat offenders in terms of illegal migrants attempting to cross the border because you can try to get through border security as many times as you want without fear of being thrown in jail or subject to some kind of civil penalty. Um, now I think the Biden administration has implemented this safe third country policy, which was started under the Trump administration. but. I understand it's not as strict as it was before. So under Trump, if you did not claim asylum when passing through a safe third country, then you were completely ineligible once you reached the United States. But the Biden policy does have a bit of a loophole. So rather than deeming these people ineligible, it actually gives them the ability to rebut that assumption so they can still present documentation in court proving that their lives are in some kind of danger or some other um, issue in their home country that would uh, give them eligibility for asylum. So they're definitely not as strict as Trump was, but it is interesting that they are sort of backtracking on this idea of having a more open borders policy because, of course, they accused Trump of having all of these non-compassionate, um, cruel policies when he was in office. Right, yeah. It, the Customs and Border Protection data, when they report on uh, these numbers of, of the Haitian migrants, they say expelled or deported, not giving precise figures of either. But yeah, I, I would agree that it's not a solution to say, okay, you've been denied asylum, we're going to keep you at this border patrol facility. I think the detainment of people trying to cross the southern border is not a solution. Uh, and it's kind of been forced by this political stalemate, right? Because you have Biden trying to lift Title 42, and then you have a federal judge out of Florida saying, you know, we actually need to keep these folks in the facilities, which is also a, a drain on resources. Many people make the, the argument that the reason we can't have migrants coming in is because there's not enough to go around. We don't have enough resources for them in the United States, and we also don't have enough jobs, which is a totally separate conversation. But if you want to make it about resources, how many resources are we spending on detaining migrants trying to come over the southern border, which is a problem that the United States had a hand in making when they meddled in the affairs of countries across uh, Latin America and Central America. And so when you cause so much disruption, uh, cooing leaders, causing wars that last beyond our period of intervention there, you're going to have people that might want to leave the country and might want to come to the United States. And so to what degree do we see this as our responsibility? And do we take some policy action when it comes to economics to open up more jobs for people to have in the United States so that these people can be put to work if they want to start a life here? I think that really needs to be the path. If you want to be a president, that changes our, our dominant narrative and our policies that we've passed for the past better half of a century when it comes to migration. Unfortunately, I just think it's hugely disruptive and not good for national unity or national security to have a catch and release policy where individuals can claim asylum without having to provide any evidence. They get released into the United States. They wait for a court date for two, three years, and the vast majority of them end up not even showing up, and they basically disappear into the country with no tracking whatsoever from our border authorities. This is why I was a huge fan of the Remain in Mexico policy under Trump, because they were not in our detention facilities or overwhelming our detention facilities, but also we're not being able to use asylum as basically a loophole um, or take advantage of that system in order to gain illegal entry into the U.S. without having to ever prove that they were um, eligible for asylum in the first place.
Yeah, I think uh, I would totally be for instead of a catch and release policy, there would be, you know, a pathway to citizenship instead, which is something that neither party has taken real substantive action on and had the opportunity to do so. Uh, when it comes to asylum seeking, is it really difficult to prove uh, that you qualify for asylum when you're leaving a war-torn region? Uh, yeah, I think that's difficult. And to be really real about how the policy is written and how it sounds good is not always how it's going to be implemented. It's going to have to be messy, uh, but we're going to need to figure out a pathway to citizenship and a way to integrate these folks into our economy. Because like you said, I don't think catch and release is a, a good response either. I don't think keeping folks detained at the border is a response either. And I don't think trying to keep folks out is going to work either if that's what people want to do. And that's not a policy I would support. Yeah, I think it's a shame that the Biden administration didn't keep in place this agreement that Trump had negotiated with Mexico, wherein they would help um, secure the southern border and basically take some responsibility for the fact that many of these Central and South American migrants were, in fact, coming through Mexico in order to get to the United States. And the fact that the Biden administration just threw that negotiation out led the Mexican president uh, to basically laugh in their face when they send Vice President Kamala Harris down there to try to start a new negotiation. It was like, okay, well, why did we have to start from zero when we had this policy that seemed to be working in place? I mean, under the Trump administration, his record high level of migrants came in May of, I believe, 2019 or 2018, and the uh, record was about 120,000, I believe. And they got those numbers down to 50 or 60,000 um, in terms of apprehensions on the southern border in just a matter of months by instituting some of these policies. It was about a 60 percent decrease. And now under Biden, you see that the record high monthly numbers are in the 200,000s. And just over the past week, there's been about 10 to 20,000 per day in anticipation of Title 42 expiring. So this is clearly an unsustainable system. We don't have enough uh, resources in either immigration courts, in the detention facilities, or in border patrol agents going down there to try to stop these people from crossing illegally to handle this issue. So clearly something policy-wise has to change, but there's not, as you said, an appetite in Congress to do that. Yeah, absolutely. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy is proposing to raise the voting age to 25. He wrote on Twitter, young people no longer value a country that they simply inherit. People value something more if they have a stake in creating. That's why I'm proposing a constitutional amendment that requires 18-year-olds to pass a civics test or meet a national service requirement. Jessica, what do you make of this proposal? It doesn't make any sense to me, Amber. I <laughs> hate it. I think it's the worst. Um, I think we need to lower the voting age. I think you can vote at the age of 16. I think this idea that uh, it doesn't make sense. You want to vote in something you have a stake in creating, not something you inherit. Um, you are creating it if you're voting at a younger age. The only problem with this logic when it comes to age, if you don't want people voting in a nation they have no stake in creating, you would have to exclude people who are older, who are going to die before they see the ramifications of what they vote to affect. So I'm not a fan of this. Um, I do think it's an effort because the Republican Party is not very popular among the youth that instead of attracting the youth with a policy platform, they're instead saying, oh, well, we'll just take them out of uh, the voting pool. I mean, youth voter participation 
at its highest in Michigan, it's 37%. At its lowest in Tennessee, it's 13%. So if you want kids to vote for you, give the kids a reason to vote for you. Don't exclude them. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how I feel about it. I don't agree with lowering the voting age, um, but I think our country has a problem with having all of these different standards for what adulthood is and when it starts, right? Because we're allowed to join the military at 18, we can smoke cigarettes, you can't drink until you're 21. There's all this science that says your brain's not fully developed until you're 25. And it's like, can we just pick one and all get on the same page with when someone is a legal adult? There's all these proposals. One just got struck down by a Virginia court to limit uh, you know, handgun sales to people 21 and older, um, some other guns as well. I think they're trying to um, expand that to rifles and, and long firearms. But again, like we have all these different ages for when we're supposed to be grown up. And I think that confuses young people. I know that I definitely struggled um, between the ages of 15 and probably 26 or 27. Like, am I an adult yet? Because society keeps giving me all of these mixed messages. Yeah, it's true. I was voting before my brain was fully developed. I did go and vote at the age of 18 for many Republicans down the ballot having no idea what I was voting for. Uh, I vote differently now. Does that mean I shouldn't have had a say? I shouldn't have voted? I, I don't know. I don't think raising the age to 25 makes sense. I think the kids need a say. We're represented by so many people who are so terribly old, who will never live in the country that they are creating with the policies they're passing, members of Congress. And a colleague of mine, uh, Mark Blythe, would always say, if you don't like what Congress is doing, just wait for them to die. But there are so many issues where we don't have the time to wait for them to die when we look at what Dianne Feinstein's doing. So Ramaswamy is taking this from a completely different angle. And I don't think it's going to be popular uh, among the youth to say, we don't think you should have a say when you currently have a say. What is this going to do to the base of voters in the Republican Party that is from the age of 18 to 25? It's not their, the majority of their base, but he's alienating voters by saying something like this. Uh, I actually have two follow-up questions for you that are kind of two separate issues, but hopefully yeah. you can take both of them. So we also have Nikki Haley, who's running for president, who has tried to uh, propose this age limit on how old politicians can be. I'm a little more amenable to that, I think. And then also Vivek wants 18-year-olds to be doing a civics test or passing some kind of, I guess, American literacy test. Um, maybe you can take both of those separately, because I'm really curious on your take on them. Yeah, I think uh, an after X age, you have to take a cognitive test is fine. Just a, an age cap, I, I would not be supportive of. There are many people who are perfectly cognizant well beyond others, uh, right? And I think it's a bit ageist to just put a, a cap because everyone's brain deteriorates at a different pace, to be quite honest. And so a cognitive test, I think, would be appropriate there. But then uh, your other question, can you repeat it? Yeah, on um, this part of Vivek's proposal where he says that 18-year-olds right. should basically have to pass a civics test before they the can vote. Test. Yeah. Uh, for that one, the level of education you get, depending on what neighborhood you live in, is going to impact your ability to vote in that case. And we already see extremely different education uh, 
inequalities across different uh, neighborhoods where there are different income levels. It affects, you know, your property tax, which affects the quality of the schools. Um, and so now we're going to have swaths of people uh, who are regular working class people who are now not allowed to participate in the political process simply because of the household that they grow up in, I don't think that that's something that we should ever consider in the United States of America. I don't think we should force kids to study for a civics test on top of all of the work that they already have to do if they're not getting good civics education in their public school. Uh, now they're going to be excluded from voting. I think that's absurd. I do think it's pretty anti-working class and the Republican Party is trying to refashion itself as the party of the working class to say yeah. that the higher educated you are, the more say you should have in voting or in the future of the country, right? Because we've seen that some of the most highly educated people in our society are literally some of the dumbest um, and come up with the most harebrained schemes because they live in this like weird idealistic world with no uh, sense of how things actually affect real people. They have no sense of pragmatism. It's all about these pie in the sky, academic intellectualized concepts of how the world is supposed to work and not how it actually does. Yeah, the root problem here, which I think maybe Ramaswamy is what inspired this for him, is we have a, a base of voters in the United States that isn't fully aware of how our government works or what's happening in politics or what's happening with the economy or foreign policy or what have you. That is a problem. The solution to that is not exclude the people who don't have access to education. The solution to that would be let's invest in good civics education. Let's invest in perhaps teaching economics in K through 12. Let's invest in having courses on just what is going on in American politics and get kids at an early age reading the news so that they're familiar with all of this well before they get to the age of 18. And I think there's a reason Ramaswamy did not propose that. I don't think he actually wants that. I think a lot of these candidates are not particularly populist. They might be in rhetoric, but a policy like this is not something that is or populist. I'm a big fan of refashioning our education system to focus more on the issues that actually affect daily lives rather than um, getting so into the weeds of certain academic concepts that frankly, leave your brain as soon as you graduate and are never actually functional in your everyday life. Um, and what's also interesting about Vivek's proposal is that it does harken back to some of the founding fathers' intentions of who was allowed to vote. The idea then was that you had to be a property owner, you had to be a white male, et cetera. Um, and it was a more exclusionary policy and a more exclusionary form of a democratic republic. Um, I think that wraps us up for today, though, Jessica. This has been super fun. Great to get to host with you for the first time. It's been good. It's been a, a blue-collar duo this Friday. <laughs> Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you next time.